Assalamu alaikum. Welcome and thank you for downloading the Ministry of Dawah podcast. Search for us on Facebook and on YouTube. This week's topic is Dua of the Oppressed. So, this discussion about the dua of the oppressed, there's a, a, a quite a few ways you can address this. Um, but to be honest, I don't want to talk about this from a point of view of, of self pity. Because this is a problem with the Muslim psyche. We have become almost like as if our view is, you know, the world is against us and it's really bad and, and so on. Um, almost to a point that it, it actually paralyzes action. So I don't want to talk about that actually um, in that way. So I'll come to what I want to talk about in a, in a second. But one thing that's important is that when you see Munkar again and again and again, what happens is it can desensitize you. You, you just accept it as normality. This is, this is what's normal. And the oppression around you, it becomes normal. It just becomes, this is, this is what just happens. Um, so, uh, for example, do you think it's acceptable for a person who is in authority, like a police officer, to say to a man who is under his authority that you can't help being a... And the word I missed sounds like trigger. Do you think that's, do you think that's normal? Do you think, do you think that's right? Or is that, is that not oppression? Is it not oppressive for a man to be walking in the streets of America on his mobile phone and be shot dead for no other reason other than the fact that he's black and he has a phone. Is that not oppression? And what's worse is the one who shot him wasn't even arrested. Brothers, we are living, and sisters, we are living in a time of oppression. It's so bad that actually we have forgotten what oppression is. And we just accepted it as, as just normality. Today children are being abused. They're being abused sexually and we just accept that as normal. As if that's, that's okay. We are seeing people getting banged up for saying nothing other than the huck. And we just accept that as normal. This is what I'm saying, is that the oppression around us, it's not just in Syria, it's not just in Afghanistan or, or all these places, it's actually around you. Because without Islam, brothers and sisters, this is what happens. Oppression becomes rampant and you just forget about it. You just accept that as normal. So this is the first point, actually. Oppression is not just abroad. We are being oppressed, we just don't even realize it. It's so bad that you don't even realize you're being oppressed anymore. The next thing, brothers, is this. That I want to talk about our history. Our great, illustrious history. Why? Because I think one of the problems, again, with, with the Ummah, is that it's forgotten its history. It has actually forgotten. It doesn't realize its great history. Why? Because history is like a washing machine. You, know, you might think I'm going mad. No. It, it, it is like a washing machine. Because in a washing machine, you put some clothes in, right? Dirty clothes, although I, I mean, I don't know how it works because my wife just 
to sort it out. But apparently, you put some clothes in there, and it spins round and round and round, does the same thing again and again and again, and out comes some clean clothes. And history is like a washing machine. Because what you find in history is that the same things repeat themselves again and again and again and again. And this ummah has a long tradition, long history of dealing with oppression. It's just that we, just like the washing machine, we can't remember what those things are. And Allah talks about it many times in the Quran. Have you heard the story of Musa? Allah asks. Why? Why is Allah asking the question? Because he goes through the history of Musa salam, how he was raised from being oppressed in the house of the oppressor. And he gives a long narration, explains how Musa salam came across the oppressor and dealt with him. And brothers, do we not see the Fir'auns all around us? In Egypt, in Syria, in Tunisia, all around us. The same oppressors saying the same things. We are God. La ilaha illa Bashar. Is that not what Firam said? So the history, Allah, Allah, Allah talks about the history. He gives the example of Ibrahim alayhi salam. The prophet who came to the realization of Allah's existence without any help. He is Khalilullah for that reason. He came to that realization intellectually himself. And he went to the oppressor. Again, the same things happened. So our history, our long Islamic traditions, they explain what you must do. And today I want to talk about just one thing only, really. And that is, what is the obligation upon the one who is being oppressed? I don't want to talk about the oppressor. We know, the, we know about the reality of the oppressor. They don't fear Allah. They don't believe in Allah. So we don't, want, we don't really worry about them. What does a Muslim do? What do you do in this situation when you're being oppressed? And we have, some, we have a long history of this. And there are three things I want to talk about. What must you do? Number one, you must dream. Yes, I mean dream. And I'll come to that in a second as to what I mean by this. Yeah? Number two, you must realize certain things. And I come to what those issues are. And number three, you must act. But very, some very specific things you must do. And I'll come to that as well. So these are the three things. Dream, realize, and act. So if we move on to the first point, dream. There was a man about 700 years ago. His name was Usman. Not, not Usman ibn Affan, just Usman. He wasn't a, a significant person. You know, he came years after the Sahaba. He, he wasn't a scholar. He was just a guy. In fact, he was in, in, in the story, he's a nomad. <clears throat> it's important to understand what nomads are. Have you guys seen those programs about travelers? On TV, yes? They're, they're nomads. They go from place to place. They don't have any place where they live. They go from place to place to place. They don't go for the full more education system. Right? And so on. So you see how they live, yes? That's nomadic lifestyle. This man was a nomad. He, wasn't, he didn't have any full more education. And one day he had a dream. Osman dreamt. In his dream he saw a tree. A huge tree. And when he looked up, all he could see was this tree. It blocked out the whole horizon. And this tree had really deep roots. It went right down into the ground. And then his trunk was so big, it spanned three continents. Three continents. It's a huge tree. And he could see four rivers flowing through this tree. 
And when he looked at this tree, he could see fruits. And on the fruits, he could see people that looked like him. Really strong people, powerful people. And then he woke up. Now again, as I said, this man wasn't a scholar. He wasn't anyone significant of his own, of his own right. So he went to the Sheikh of Islam. And he said, Ya Sheikh, I, ha- I saw this dream. The Sheikh said two things about this dream. After, after a long time thinking about it. Because you, you and your children will dominate the earth. You will form a empire and you will dominate the earth. And you must do two things. He said, what? Number one, you must fulfill this dream. And number two, you have to marry my daughter. He said, why? He goes, well, if, you're going to, if your children are going to dominate the earth, I want them from my daughter. So he gave his daughter his hand in marriage and he married her. You know who this man Usman was? In Turkish, they call him Usmanli. And in, Arab, in, in English, they call him Ottoman. He was the first Khalifa of the Ottoman Empire. And his sons dominated Europe. Absolutely dominated Europe. That tree he saw on three continents was Asia, Europe, and Africa. Those rivers that he saw were the Tigris, the Nile, the Euphrates, and the Danube. His sons indeed conquered Europe. It's very important though to understand to what degree they conquered Europe. Because we are not told our history. You don't realize this. Did you know, for example, that Osmani Khilafa conquered Perugia? And if, if you don't know where that is, that's in Italy. Did you know that Osmani Khilafa was in Sicily? Actually took Sicily. Did you know, brothers, that Osmani Khilafa laid, laid siege to Nice for months? Nice is in France. Have you guys heard of Toulon? Why, why, why did you say yes? Anyone, anyone, anyone tell me about Toulon? Every four years they have a tournament there. And it's the football under 18 tournament. It's, it's held in Toulon in France. You know the Khilafa was in Toulon for three months. To such a degree they built mosques there. And then, and they used to call to Adhan. All of these countries, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, Kosovo, Albania, <coughs> Greece, Rhodes, Ukraine, Poland, all of those countries are part of this Khilaf. It dominated Europe. Absolutely dominated Europe. And yet you're not told about this. So brothers, this is the dream of Usman. So can you see the power of the dream? Now, why is this important? Why are dreams important? See, what dreams do is they give you a vision. They give you an aim. If you don't have dreams, if you don't have clarity of purpose as to what you should be going for, then what happens when you're being oppressed is that the first slight improvement and you think you are in a better situation. That's the problem, you see. When you are not clear on what it is that you should be having as, as, as your improvement, then this is what happens. So, at the moment, you look in the Middle East, and they're calling for democracy. I don't know if you know, but in Egypt, Ikhwan al-Muslimin has just backed the candidate of 
of the SCAF. And if you don't know who the SCAF is, this is the security forces. The same security forces, brothers, the same security forces <coughs> that have been torturing Ikhwan for the last 50 years. The same security forces that have been torturing all the Muslim groups. <coughs> and they have just backed them. This is what happens when you don't know what you're doing. You don't have a vision, you don't have an idea or end point. This is what happens. Can you believe this? The narrowness of our vision today, brothers. We're calling for democracy as if we have nothing better to offer. We don't have an Islamic political system. We don't have an Islamic economic system. We don't have a long history in Europe. Did you know that we seized Vienna three times? We went to the gates of Vienna three times. Vienna is very important because Vienna, at the time, Austria was the most powerful part of Europe. Not like the Austria today. The, the, the only good export from Austria now is probably Arnold Schwarzenegger. But at the time, Austria was the most powerful part of Europe. And we laid siege to Austria three times. You know, once we got under the ground and we got into, the, in, into a baker's shop because we went right under the ground to try and get into this place. And the baker, you know, heard the army coming and he called his army. And they came and they dealt, dealt with that, that uh, 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 um, invasion. That baker, he went away and he built, he actually made a cake to, to celebrate. That's called a croissant. Did you know that the croissant is a reaction, is a celebration for stopping the, the Usmani Khilafah? That's why it's shaped like a star, like a crescent. So this is our history. We, we lay siege to Vienna three times, and today, look at what we're calling for. We're calling for democracy. The same democracy, brothers, just like they have in the West. Pay-as-you-go democracy. Pay-as-you-go democracy. You go to Cameron, you give him £30,000, and you can talk to him. And you don't think that's oppression? Why do you think the fuel prices are so high? Have you not wondered why? Because the rich businesses will not let them lower the prices. This is oppression. You're being oppressed. You just don't realize it. Why is it the gas prices are so high? Utility prices are so high? Why is everything? Because this is the reality of business and politicians. Pay as you go democracy. Is this what we want for our country, brothers? Is that it? That's our vision. We want to establish a democratic system like they have in the West. Not even as good as they have in the West. And we think that's progress. So the first thing, brothers, is we don't really want to be coexistent. We don't want to just improve. We want to better our situation properly. And in order to do that, you have to dream. You have to have a very clarified aim and objective, just like Uthman did. He knew what he wanted. And then he went and he established that. And his sons established that. And they carried that on for 700 years. Number two. Realize. You see, you've got to realize certain things about it. When you look for the history, there are some realizations you have. That when you lose something, and then you regain it, you understand the value of the thing being lost. So only when you lose it. So if anybody wants to get romantic with his wife, then just stay away from her for two weeks, and then go back to her. And you'll find that suddenly, you know, you'll fall in love. Absence makes the heart, heart, heart grow fonder. That's my advice. <laughs> When you lose something and you regain it, you have a deeper love for it. And there are many times in our history where we <coughs> abandoned the sunnah or a part of it. And we saw what happened. We saw the consequences of it. And then we came back to it. Many, many, many times. So for example, there was a time in the Umayyad Khilafah. After the Prophet ﷺ, not even a hundred years after the Prophet ﷺ had died. 
And you know what happened? They started to go towards the, the, the dunya. Khalifa after Khalifa after Khalifa. They started to abandon the ways of the Prophet You know, they used to drink, some of them. There was, to, there was open fornication. They, the, there was nudity, all sorts of, all sorts of vices. And then Allah, Allah, Allah sent a Khalifa. His name was Umar, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. And he was a great Khalifa. They say that he was the fifth Khulafa Rashida. He was the fifth rightly guided Khalifa. And they say that because, does anyone know the genealogy of this man? Um, yes, right. There's a very famous example of Umar Khattab. He used to walk the streets in a cloak. Almost, almost like a robber, and they go from house to house. Before they had a notion of public opinion, and you know, uh, um, opinion polls, he used to go and listen to what people would say about him directly, not from, from intermediaries. Because when you ask someone, "What did they say about me?" they're going to they're gonna sugarcoat that. You're going to say, "Well, you know, they're not. It's okay. They're not so bad." If you want to know what's really going on, you want to go and listen yourself. So he used to go from house to house, and he came to a house. And he listened to the, the poverty of the house. There was a woman and her daughter. They were hungry. And all they had was water and some stones. So they put the stones in the water and boiled it to add some flavor. And the mother said, where is Umar bin al-Khattab? Where is he to help me? And she said, maybe we should go and steal some food. And the daughter said to the mother, oh my mother, what happens if Umar bin khattab catches you? We know what he's like. Umar Khattab was, was, was harsh. You know, even the shaitan used to walk the other side of the road when he used to see Umar Khattab. And she said, how will he know? How is he going to know that? And the daughter said, but the Lord of Umar bin Khattab will know. That you should fear Allah. And when Umar heard this, you know, he was so moved. He went, he went to the Baytul Mal. And he gave money to this family. So that they could feed themselves. And then he gave, he asked for the daughter's hand in marriage. For, for his son. And Umar ibn Abdul Aziz was the granddaughter of that woman. So her genealogy came directly from Umar ibn Khattab. So his genealogy came from Umar ibn Khattab. So this is the genealogy of Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. And you know he had challenges. Challenges in his time. People were disunited. They used to curse Imam Ali after khutbah every Friday. They used to curse him every Friday. They were, they were disunited. They used to drink some of them openly. Some of the rulers used to drink openly. There was much fitna. But most importantly, they started to forget about the deen. So when he came, brothers, he removed every ruler that was vain and had wealth. He removed them, all of them. And he only appointed rulers that abided by Islam properly. He stopped the cursing of Ali. And he, he, he started to bring unity. But most importantly, he ordered the, the compiling of hadith. You, will not ha- you would not have hadith today if it wasn't for Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. So that's why they say he was the first mujaddid, the first revival of the deen. But my question to you is, after 50, 60, 70, 80 years after the death of the Prophet, where did he learn to be like Umar Khattab? That was his great-grandfather. How did he learn to be like him? Because the examples in the sunnah, the examples already in the Quran and sunnah, Rasulullah said, After me, I, I leave two things, and if you follow those things, you will not stray. They are the Quran and the Sunnah. 
But what did he do? He went back to the Quran and Sunnah. And he established a society based upon the Quran and Sunnah. So they deviated and then they corrected themselves. Happened only, well, not even a hundred years after the Prophet died. And remember, in that period, they had killed Abdullah ibn Zubair on the cross. They had burnt the Kaaba. I don't know if you know that. They fought and they burnt the Kaaba. There was much fitna. And he came and he united them. So within a short period of time they deviated, then they came back. Brothers, do you know the story of the Mongols? And how they came? Do you know how they came to Baghdad? They came through treachery. The assistant of the Khalif, he wanted to be the ruler. And the Mongols were like no other army has ever seen. They were, they were, I mean, their men, their women, their children, everything is geared for battle. No army has ever defeated them until that point. And the, and the Khalif in Baghdad was terrified of them. And his governor, you know what he did? He went up to them and he said, why don't I get you in? You can talk to the Khalif and then you can deal with him. Do, do what you have to do with him and then make me the ruler. So th- that's what they did. They came through the assistant. Treachery. Just like the treachery of our rulers. Just like the treachery of our rulers. Look at them. How did America get into Afghanistan? Through our rulers. How is it possible for America to attack Iraq? Through our rulers. They give them bases. They, they let you down. They constantly betray you. Same examples. Same examples again. This washing machine of history. You see? Same examples. Same things happen again and again and again. But the interesting thing is this. When the Mongols dealt with the Khalif, they killed him. They, they rolled him in a carpet and trampled on him until he died. That's humiliating. <clears throat> Imagine that. Imagine seeing your ruler killed in that way. Not even a conventional battle. Not even, you know, be, uh, uh, um, lost in battle. They came into his place, they rolled him in a carpet and they trampled him like a dog. That's disgraceful. And the assistant, they said to the assistant, we don't trust you. Because if you can betray your ruler, you can betray us, so you're dead too. They killed him. From that point on, brother, for the first time in the history of Islam, we started to lose. We lost wilaya after wilaya after wilaya after wilaya. Against who? Against the Mongols. Just like now. You see the Muslims, they fight, they lose. Fight against Israel, they lose. They fight, all these battles, they keep losing. Why? Same realities. Same, this, this washing machine of history, as I said, it goes round in circles, explains why. Until one man came. His name was Saifuddin al-Qutus. And what was unique about him was, two or three things were very unique about him. First of all, he only wanted to stick by the haq. <coughs> Islam. So when the Mongols came to him and offered him a truce, they offered him a truce, they said, look, we'll just basically call it quits. He got the one who came, cut his neck off and put it outside. As a form, as an example to say, if you come and attack the Muslims, this is what I'm going to do to you. And then he realized he needs to unite the Muslims. So what did he do? He asked the Sheikh of Islam, said, Ya Sheikh, you need to give a fatwa to tell all the Muslims that they have to fight behind me. Because at that point, Sayyiduddin, you know, wasn't the Khilafah, uh, Khalifa. So he was not recognized in that way. And the Sheikh of Islam said, look, I will only do, I, I will do this but on one condition. So, what's that? I will only do this if you give all your wealth to me first. 
I want to see you put your money where your mouth is. I want to see all your wealth gone in the form of this jihad. And if you do that, then I'll give the fatwa. So look at this. Look at this example. You have the Sheikh of Islam, who is only willing to give a fatwa on the basis that the ruler is going to do what he says he's going to do. And compare him to our shuyukh today. Compare him to the shuyukh today, who say you can't, you're not even allowed to protest. You're not even allowed to account the ruler. And look what he's saying. And say for the Qutuz, he went home, he took all his wealth, and he gave it to the Sheikh of Islam. So can you see this man and his love for Islam? Number two, when everybody fought under him, they fought only for Islam. He wouldn't accept any other boundary. But this is a long history anyway, I'll, I'll go into it another time. The point is, we beat the, the Mongols in the Battle of Angelud. But at this time, brother, we lost all our states. There, there was the, the Islamic state has shrunk. You know how long it took? You know how long it took for the Islamic state to grow again? Only 40, 50 years. That short period of time. And that's when, when we had the Ottoman Khilafah. So what, what, what's the point I'm saying? The point I'm saying, brothers, is many times we lose our way. And every time we lose our way, we become stronger. So we lost Baghdad, but we got the Osmanis. And for 700 years, they dominated Europe. They dominated Europe. You know, the Europeans had to have a treaty called the Treaty of Westphalia, specifically to deal with the Osmani Khilaf. Specifically. And just like that, brother, realize that point. Inshallah, we will have a Khilaf al-Rashidah on the manhaj of the Prophet And it will be stronger than all the other Khilaf before. Why? Because Muslims, it took them 200 years to realize why they had fallen. It took them 200 years to realize that they only Islam is acceptable. It took them this long to deal with ideas like democracy and nationalism. And today they come out stronger. And all we need now is a state. But in terms of their ideas, they are strong. They are stronger than they were for the last 200 years. So we can see that the seeds are there, inshallah. The third point, brothers, is action. Imam Shafi, he said that if there was only one surah in the Quran, if Allah only revealed one surah in the Quran, then it would have been Surah Asr. Because it explains the whole philosophy of Islam in three lines. Well, Asr, inna al-insana la fi khusr, illa ladina aman wa amil salihat, wa tawasabil haqqi wa tawasabil sabr. Allah swears by time. Verily, man is at a loss. Except illa. Now, first of all, when Allah swears by something like this, it is an affirmation of something. So that means whatever comes afterwards is significant. Number two, Allah says man is losing, he's at a loss. Except what? Except when he believes and does righteous actions. Not one or the other. So iman without actions is not good enough. And actions without iman is not good enough. You have to do both. And the problem is here is that when you are oppressed, what happens is you become paralyzed. Not paralyzed, not paralyzed physically, but intellectually. And that intellectual paralysis is what negates iman. It actually starts to affect your belief, your iman. And this is why you cannot progress. So for example, <clears throat> we have lost our way to a point 
where we've, we've started to think that Islam is not a suitable political system. Is that not paralysis? You become paralyzed by, by democracy. So you don't think that you have anything to offer the world except to follow the kuffar. So this will paralyze you, brothers. Have when we been, t- been, been told for years that you cannot account the ruler. You have to accept them. They are our rulers. The ruler is a reflection of the people and so on. Don't, this paralyzes you. Intellectually paralyzes you. We've been told that America is too strong. Our rulers are too strong. Israel is too strong. We are too weak. We need to be like Umri Khattab. We need to work on our Iman. And so on and so on. All paralyzing concepts. They paralyze you. And when you become paralyzed, then you start negating your Iman. And how can you act when you, do not, when you are not clear on what it is that you should be believing? And for 50, 60 years, this was the state of the Muslims. It's only recently they've got out of that paralysis. Only recently, very recently they realized that all these things are ridiculous. Now these scholars are saying, Ah, oh, Khilafah Rashida, yes we want Khilafah, Khilafah is obligatory. Why? All of a sudden they come out and they change their views. Because the Ummah has made them change their views. Not because they held that view in the first place. Not all of them, some of them mustn't say it. But not all of them. But you start seeing brothers, that actually, these were the people that were holding you back. And when the Ummah realizes that, then she starts to move. The next thing is action. See, what is imperative now? What is, what is the key thing one must do now? One must understand that in order for us to change our situation, in order for us to get into a place, we have to make sure that we deal with some of these ideas in the Muslim countries. Ideas such as Islam doesn't have a suitable economic system. This is why we've launched the Gold Report. I don't know, I don't know if you saw this. We actually launched a report on the gold standard, which, which offers an Islamic alternative. Why? Because we want to start to build that notion in the minds of the Muslims. And everybody has a role to play. Everybody, you and me, we all have a role to play. We have to wake the Muslims up. Just like Sayyiduddin al-Qutus woke the Muslims up. Can you see the example? Same thing, the same reality. You've got to wake them up, make them realize that Islam has a strong economic system. We have a strong political system. We don't have a pay-as-you-go democracy, as they have. We have a political system that is stronger than that. That if, if, if anybody, if, if anyone deviates, we have ways to correct them. We have a system that is a stronger system. There is no better political system than the Islamic political system. And I can, I can talk about that later. We have a role to play in that. We need to make sure that Muslims realize that. Because as they are looking at all the alternatives, in Tunisia, in Egypt and so on, our job is to make sure that nothing paralyzes them conceptually and that they are motivated for Islam. Very, very briefly again, so in this talk, what we've addressed is what is the responsibility of the one who's oppressed. And as I said, there are three clear points. Number one, that when, when you're oppressed, you need a clear vision or a clear thought <clears throat> about how you're going to get out of that oppression. Meaning you need to understand what getting out of oppression looks like. Um, so if you don't have that, then what happens is a slight improvement in your, in your circumstances and you think you're out of oppression. Um, and this is not acceptable for us. So we don't want to improve our reality by adopting uh, democracy. That's not going to get us anywhere. We don't want to just improve our uh, uh, reality just by overthrowing our, our rulers. So that's not going to get us where we want to get to. 
we want to establish a khilafah based upon the uh, uh, manhaj of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Number two, that when you lose something and then you regain it, it is always stronger. And this is hope for the ummah. Very important because Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam explained how what will happen after him. He says, after me there will be no khulafa, so there will be no prophets. There will be khulafa and they will number many. And he describes their evolution. You will have a khilafa rashida. And then you'll have, you know, he goes through uh, uh, reality after reality after reality. You'll have kingship, you'll have oppression. And then you'll have biting tyranny. A biting tyranny. Just like we have now. Biting tyranny. We have seen oppression like there has never been in the past. And we are going through that now. This is our current reality now. And then he said, and after that, ثُمَّ تَكُونُ خِلَافَ عَلَى مِنْ حَجَ And after that, there will be a khilafa on the manhaj of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And my point is, the reason why, inshallah, we will see that, is because the ummah has come to the realization of why it lost the khilafa in the first place. What it abandoned, it abandoned Islam. Not in its, in its religious practices, not in the prayer and the salah, but, but in an actual political system. It didn't realize what it had. And it adopted democracy, adopted the French penal code. And slowly, slowly, one by one, it abandoned Islam politically. Today, the ummah is ready to take back that political Islam. So this is why in that hadith, you can now see what the reality of the hadith is. Once the ummah realizes what political Islam looks like, then it will be a khilafah on the manhaj of the Prophet So this is what you have to realize. This is the hope. And the third point is action. Brothers, our action... Our job is to make sure that that realization of Islam is not unclear. It's not something vague. People don't adopt a bit of Islam and a bit of democracy, a bit of this and a bit of that. We want them to, to accept Islam in its, in its totality. Otherwise, all this oppression of our ummah is wasted. Why did all these people die in Tahrir Square if we're going to adopt democracy? Why is that any different? Tell me. Tell me what's different in Egypt today. You had a military dictator. You removed that military dictator, you put another one in there. What's the difference? Tell me. What's the difference? You have from one dictator to another dictator, it's exactly the same thing. Has anything really changed? Do you have Sharia in Egypt? No. Do you have Islam in Egypt? No. What is the basis of Islam? Sorry, what is the, the, the basis of the state? It's not Islam. They even recognize Israel still. There's nothing has changed. So this is my point, is that we have to make sure that when the Ummah changes for something, it changes for Islam. That's our job. So we have to, we have to quantify and qualify what an Islamic economic system looks like. We have to quantify and qualify what an Islamic political system looks like so that the Ummah goes for that. Because I believe that there is goodness in the Ummah. Rasulullah said there is khair in me and my Ummah until Yom Al-Qiyam. There is good in this Ummah until, until the Day of Judgment. So the Ummah wants the khair, we have to show them what the khair is. This is our job. So brothers and sisters, this is very, very briefly, those are the three points. This is what you do when you are oppressed. You don't wallow in self-pity and think, oh, it's terrible. Rulers, oh man, you have to understand what you have to do. And these are the three things you must do. And they are catalogued in our history. Thanks for downloading this podcast. You can subscribe to it from our blogspot at centralmod.blogspot.com to receive our weekly podcast. Assalamu alaikum.